So I was fasting, like Tom mentioned, right? He knew about it. You know, we kind of talked about it. And then he's like, yeah, like, don't worry. Just, just go in the room 15, 20 minutes. You got it. You know, you can, you can just relax in there. I go, I go into that room. I, I took a little nap. I find out later that this guy opened the door and kept the creek open so he can just record me while I was sleeping. It turned out into a whole meme. I had people from UFT messaging me that I haven't even talked to in so long (laughs) telling me, oh, hey, Waleed, look at you. You look like a clown (laughs) here. What is up, everyone? This is the PT3 Podcast, your favorite podcast with your co-hosts, Prime, Michael, and Waleed. What's up, everyone? Doing good, doing good. I'm not so excited for this one, I won't lie. <laughs> he's, got, he's got the shirt on, he's ready to go. Oh, yeah. This one's personal. This one's personal because... <laughs> I'm getting back at it. He, he knows, he knows. He knows, yeah. I'm ready, I'm ready. <laughs> he's ready. So we have a very special guest with us today. Mr. Tom Swales, legendary in the PT community, Waleed's father figure slash mentor. <laughs> oh, that's why he's got the mug going, right? The dad feel mug. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. yeah. My, my, my prodigal son forces me to drink. Oh, <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> yeah, we're very excited to have Tom on. Uh, I'm going to let you introduce yourself, though, because there's so many things after your name. There's so many designations. Wait, wait. I'm just going to let you give your background so Wait, before, before he starts I, I do have to say when when i walked into like his office the first time i remember just looking up and there was just a there's just like two or three walls covered with plaques <laughs> just covered with plaques and i'm like this guy's so obnoxious <laughs> <laughs> exactly it, it it's that's not for like the patients to be like hey look i know some stuff it's for the physio students that come in and just make you feel bad about yourself. That's basically exactly. why I do it. Yeah. My self-esteem was down in the gutters. Exactly. Well, yeah. Well, it, you know, start off on the right foot and then it's just uphill. And there's exactly. no expectation. You know, I didn't have my, much expectations for you coming in. So it's all good. <laughs> you know what? I think our I think our audience would benefit from a background on how you two know each other and just a background yourself as well. So Tom, why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Okay. So um um I grew up in, I guess, grew up in Alliston and then undergrad went to the U.S. for a soccer scholarship, um, came back. I went down there for and got my athletic therapy degree. So athletic, athletic training, it's called down there. So I did four-year bachelor's and then had two years in between uh, undergrad and physio to get some life experience. Plus, I didn't get into physio school the first two times I applied mm-hmm. and uh, got into physio school, got, you know, worked for a couple of companies went with the ski team and then you know and then it brings us to uh meeting Waleed so like that's pretty much the whole some of my story like that was the pinnacle that, that's when his life changed yeah that was it um well yeah so Waleed had a placement um at concept movement at our, our at our facility and uh he did surprisingly well I was I was I was impressed and the truth and comes out the truth comes yeah. out <laughs> He was my, he was my social media kicking bag. So he was about a lot of my jokes, which was a lot of fun. And he was yes. doing, he was doing Ramadan too. So some of those. I saw that. Got, yeah. You, you caught him cheating. <laughs> yeah. The Ramadan police came uh-huh. in and busted him. It was awesome. But uh, I was on the podcast. <laughs> I outed you. No. Um, yeah. So that, that's kind of a quick synopsis. Um, 
I, you know, I had a great mentor once I finished working with this, the, the Canadian ski team for a bit. Um, I met him on an acupuncture course, Doug Freer. And I knew when I finished with the ski team, I needed to work with Doug because I heard how great he was and what a great teacher he was just in that two day acupuncture um, uh, course. And uh, so I worked there for three years and then had aspirations to open up my own clinic. I had my own mindset and philosophy of like, I know I like the active side of rehab and I've always leaned into the high performance and that's where my athletic training came in. So you'd have, you'd have an athlete straight from the field package, triage, rehab, back to high performance. Um, and then going to physio, it kind of gave me that, um, a little bit more in depth scope of practice where you can, it's not just the MSK orthopedic side of things. You know, you got your neuro, your cardiac arrest, you know, everything, chronic disease, um, the biopsychosocial model, um, you know, it, it just, it gives you that much more leverage in which you can draw knowledge from because a lot of professions are, they're pretty linear. It's just like, oh, you're a chiro, so therefore it's your spine. Oh, you're a massage, you do soft tissue. Oh, you're a psychologist, you, you deal with the mind. Whereas physio, it, it's like a double-edged sword. A lot of people don't, don't know what we do because it's not really well-defined because we do so many things. But I think that's an advantage. So we can become these specialized generalists. And because we have exposure to all these different realms, neuro, cardi, rest, you can pull a lot of that knowledge into your MSK. Um, you know, like, well, being at our facility, we do a lot of uh, functional neurology. So we use, we look at Sharp and Romberg and we use reflexes and we use saccades and eye movement positions to activate the cerebellum to get better spinal activation through the neck or or down in the sacrum or whatever it is. And when I left physio school, I told myself, I'm never touching this stuff again. I'm going to be strictly MSK. Neuro was my worst, cardiorespiratory, nope, no thanks. And then the more I started doing this, well, the brain controls everything. So back to neuro we go. And then using what you know from a, a biochemistry standpoint, you can use breath work um, to change chemistry and you can use breath work to change mindset and you can get access to stress levels and manage stress through breathing. So now you're using neurology to control the musculoskeletal conditions and the state of the person. So, um, I know I kind of went off of like where I came from, but I wanted to appreciate, appreciate, you know, um, what going into physio school did for me into the high performance stuff that I already like doing that kind of brought it for a full circle into mm-hmm. kind of how we do things. So the first thing I wanted to just like, like ask about, you mentioned your mentor was Doug Freer. Yeah. What was it about Doug that you, like when you worked with him for three years, like what was it that he highlighted for you? Or what was some of the things that you picked up on from him that you he, implemented into your practice? He, he's a very um, intuitive clinician where he can look at you or put his hands on you and he can kind of visually see inside your body. Right. Um, he, you know, he's very much into the acupuncture, traditional Chinese medicine side of things. He's done, you know, if you want to see somebody's wall of horses, well, he go, go to Doug's clinic. Um, his is just covered. It's not just his office. It's like they're all over his hallways. Um, yeah. So learning from somebody like that, it opened my eyes and, he would explain it in a way that I didn't really truly understand or appreciate at the time. I, I respected it. And I'm like, okay, I kind of see how that 
is involved, but I didn't have the interpretation of the language he was using because he would use more energetic, holistic type of metaphors and, and ways of doing it. She had incredible results, but I didn't understand because I was in such a mechanistic perspective or mind frame to understand the energetic things that he was talking about. Fast forward five, six years later, and I started looking at functional neurology and physics. And I started diving into those aspects. And I'm like, oh, that's what Doug was saying. So like when we talk about acupuncture channels, they're bioelectrical channels. They're there, they're measurable, and we can detect them with modern technology, but they don't follow anatomical rules. And if you think of just what matter is, matter is just compressed energy. And matter comes from energy. It's just organized in a specific way. So once I started going back to kind of physics, cell biology, and kind of how the universal works a little bit with energy, frequency, and vibration, it gave me the, uh, the key code to unlock what, what Doug was always trying to teach me from a, from a metaphysical perspective. So there is, there is validity. It's just hard to measure some of the things that these incredible healers do because we just don't have the tools to measure. You know, we can get a goniometer and measure range of motion, EEGs and EKGs and, you know, nerve conduction. And, and that's great, but it's looking at physical structures. But if you don't have the device to measure something as complex as, as you know, forms of energy, and, and we do now, then therefore it doesn't exist. But once you can measure it, therefore it exists. And it's not woo-woo anymore, right? If you can explain it, oh, that's just science because fire was considered magic, right? Our ancestors discovered fire and also, oh, this is magic. But also, as, as, you know, you start explaining it as combustion and this release of energy from physical substance. Oh, well, that's not magic anymore. That's science. I have a question related to that. So there is this big culture going around these days about following research or what the research or new evidence shows because you know the pt world is evolving so fast there's so many things we don't know right um but from what i've learned from various clinicians sometimes research is not all that can contribute to clinical clinical reasoning like a lot of times they go back to their clinical experience what's worked for them and that might not necessarily be reflected in the research so what do you think about balancing uh, the use of new research with your intuition as a clinician, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, you know, if you have a large study, it just validates what a lot of people did on a specific population with a specific technique or combination of techniques or whatever it is that they're measuring. And it's not going to be hundred percent perfect, right? We'll say, Oh, this study showed 60% of this population responded to X cool. All right. Well, that's decently strong, but what about the other 40%? If we were, if we were these, you know, machines like cars and robots, we could say with certain pretty good certainty that, Oh, when we do this to robot a, this happens hundred percent of the time, but we're not robots. We're not these mechanical beings. And what makes us complex is our biology and then our psychology that affects our biology. And that's why our our field is it's it's settled in science to validate what we do so that we don't do harm and that we are not just making shit up but then we also have to look at the psychology of the person has placed such a profound effect on their biology and their physiology that you can 
if you put a thought into somebody's head or use a negative word and their nervous system starts to protect, okay? But I could be doing a technique perfect and it, and it works for 70% of this population over here. But for this person, because of the language you may have used, they're not going to respond to the physical treatment. Now, and that's why we use double blind placebos and, you know, people can't disrupt what is being applied by saying something that may be interpreted by the, the testee um, to, to change the results. Um, it's, it's an art and a science. Like we know what we do is both an art and a science, but if I have, even if it's something is not based in research, if I've done something on somebody a thousand times and it worked a specific way consistently, I'd say that's a pretty good sample size. Uh, the consistency of the clinician, my, you know, being myself, I've done it repeatedly relatively the same way on these thousand people. And I got, you know, 90, let's say 90% effectiveness. I'm going to go with that. Is it published? No. Um, is it clinical experience? Yes. Um, but you, you have a good sample size to know what it does. And most of the time, what we do, science is usually about 10 to 15 years behind of a research project and skills and techniques are always evolving. And science can't really keep up to, oh, there's this new technique or this new way of thinking. Well, we got to set this up. We got to get grants. We got to get money. We got to get the sample size. We got to get that. Well, five years, 10 years have gone by and people are like, well, I've been using this for 10 years and I know it works, but now I have research to tell me that it works. So, you know, is it necessary? Yes, because it gives solace to people who are trusting us that we are science-based, but we also have to understand that because we're working with complex beings, uh, that is the human, um, nothing is, there's no, there's no guarantees and there's no absolutes. So with more experience, essentially, you'll get yep. a better idea of how your patients react to some of your assessments and treatments. Now, what would you say to like new grads who are just coming out of school and don't have as much experience and who are kind of like on their first couple months of working? Um, get very good at connecting with your patients very quickly. If they don't like you, they're not going to, regardless of how good you are, they will not respond. Their nervous system will not let you in. Nothing will change and nobody gets better. <clears throat> so communication is, is going to be one of those main keys that you need to establish because if you're an excellent communicator with your patients and they feel heard, now they're going to feel safe. Oh, I trust this person. I like this person. They didn't cut me off. They let me talk for 20 minutes to tell my whole story that I need to get off my chest in order for me to get past this physical injury. So you don't need to be exceptionally skilled um, from a, from a tech, you know, a technical standpoint, but you do need to be, socially skilled with how you connect and, and communicate to your patients, because if they feel safe, you could do a pivot of how it might be the wrong one, but you know, you measured something before you did your technique. They like you, maybe you got them laughing and then you did the technique and then they go bend over, test your toes. Oh, wow. It worked. Even though you're, and you start thinking like, oh, I did the wrong technique. Well, but yeah, but they got better. So who cares? Yeah. No, I mean, they, they I, I like hurt. that. I like they that. Felt hurt. They felt safe. They got touched because we know that skin, the skin in the brain and the gut, they all form from the endoderm. So the skin is the connection to the brain because we know brains don't have pain receptors. Everything is felt through the skin. And if you touch the skin in a specific way with a specific pressure, heat, cold, 
the nervous system, the brain interprets that information and it will say, yes, I like it. No, I don't. If it doesn't like it, what does it do to the system? Locks it up, restricts, protects. If it liked it, they feel safe. Oh, okay. I'm going to relax all the tissue and muscles and nerves underneath this person's hand because I feel good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like um, the best example of what you're talking about came to me, like when I was dealing with one of um, my patients at like the placement that I'm at right now. And the lady basically experienced like chronic neck and low back pain. So the first time I was seeing her, I just focused on my technique because I learned a new technique in terms of performing some sort of a pivot or something like that. And I felt like it would provide some sort of an input that would maybe change something for her. But I only focused on that. And I didn't like take the time to actually get to know this person who I'm meeting for the first time. Right. Once I finished my treatment with her, literally she got off the bed and she's like, I still feel pain. Like, I don't know Mm -hmm. what you did, but I feel like I I still feel pain. And then And she's like, it feels like it might have gone worse after what you did. And I'm like, right. and I kind of froze as a student because I was like, oh, the sure. technique felt like this. The technique felt like that. Like, I felt like I did it right. Blah, 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 blah. Like, and then I saw her like maybe a week later. And then my CI being the CI that like, I feel like my CI just pick on me at this point. And um, he kind of threw me into the same patient and said, figure it out. And I'm like, oh. but this, this person this person was upset with my treatment last time and they're like, yeah, like this is, this is the real world. You're going to have to like, at a certain point, you're going to have to like, this is one of those moments where it's either you sink or you swim. Right. Cause you've told <laughs> me what's going to happen. You've told me what's happened before. Let's see what you can do this time. Cause she's going to say the same stuff. So yeah. this time my approach changed. I was like, this person is going to still feel pain. Let's just get to know her. So I just spend time like getting to know about her childhood and where she's from and what her experiences of everything's been like. And I focus only on her neck, like instead of focusing on multiple areas where she felt pain. And when this patient stood up, she felt relief. You know, she was like, oh, like, I feel good. Like, and then that's where this, this thing that you're talking about language and this communication is getting to know your patient doesn't necessarily like mean like it's, it's very undervalued and you overvalue as a student, like the technical skills that you have. Yeah. So, yeah. Too, too often we use language that is, it's got these negative connotations to it. Dysfunctional, disc derangement, degenerative disc disease. You know, how many times like, oh, you know, I got an x-ray or an MRI on my back and I have degenerative disc disease. I'm like, great. You have gray hair and you're fine. That's awesome. I have it too. Um, but, you know, these, these words that we use to diagnose, <clears throat> they're scary and it makes people feel broken and they're not, not fixable. We have to unbreak a lot of that programming um, as clinicians that be like, look, show them what they can do, right? Oh, I can't lift my arm. Okay, great. But your neck moves good and muscles are firing up. So let's work with that. People get too focused on the negative and not the positive. And if you can shift their mind to more positive, then what does that do to their nervous system? Oh, I, I do. I have confidence. I start to feel safe. I am I'm allowed to move this arm again because it's not damaged. It's just impinged and we're just doing it wrong. So, um, it's, Language is the more I've been doing this, you really have to listen and then be very careful how you use words and the words that you use. And, you know, I don't, if something is, is popping out at me that I'm like, Ooh, this is kind of, you know, sketchy, or this is kind of red flagish. Um, you know, I won't, I won't alarm them, but I'm, you know, it's always the, Hey, you know what, let's get some more investigation on this. Um, because there's just some things that, 
aren't lining up for me. Not, oh, I'm going to call the ambulance right now and, you know, uh, don't move your neck or don't move whatever it is. It depends on the situation, of course, because um, you don't want to catastrophize. I find too often there's, there's therapists will, somebody will walk in and their glutes aren't firing up as well as you should. They got this trend like, and they'll be like, I can't believe you walked in here uh, on your own without a crutch or a cane. And they're like, well, should I not have been doing that? Like, am I, did I damage it further? Like, why would you say that? It's ridiculous. Now, now you, now you've created this mental block for this patient and now they're going to be afraid to move that leg. And now you have to unwind that. I mean, good business model for that clinician, but you know, it's not helping the patient at all. That's, yeah, that's yeah. honestly really helpful, especially for like us as new grads, just finishing yeah. up. Like we're all on placement right now on our fourth placement. we got one coming up and like some of those words, yeah. right? Like using those, I guess, quote unquote, like there's a positive version and a negative version. So you can choose yeah. which one you want to use. And, you know, hearing this from you, a very experienced clinician, using those positive words can really have like positive outcomes with the patients. Whereas in like sure. what he was saying, right, you know, just speaking with your patient a little bit, really trying to understand their story. That's like a really good way to almost recoup. That's what I was going to ask you before. I was like, oh, how would you recoup from a scenario like that? And we'll leave yep. recoup from it, it seemed like. So hopefully all is going to go well with that patient you're seeing, Willie. Okay. Are you surprised at this point? <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> I'm a bit surprised. I am. I'm not gonna lie. I am. <laughs> okay. All right. I'm just asking. I'm just asking. <laughs> we need a follow up uh, in two weeks. <laughs> um. So I know you mentioned that you uh, have a background in athletic therapy. You mentioned that yeah. earlier on in the podcast. Um. We're just wondering how your background in athletic therapy influenced your practice as a physiotherapist right now. It's um. It. What going to physio school, uh, it definitely put me ahead of all the orthopedic stuff because we it, athletic therapy, it does a lot of the same stuff orthopedically, um, uh, as physios do, you know, you're using modalities, you're doing special tests, you're clinically diagnosing, um, the, you know, the on-field triage, you know, somebody goes down with a potential neck and you have to assess the situation. You use a lot of more of your EMR, um, for sure. And packaging. And, and so it, it really teaches you to one, to stay calm. Um, when something like you see a leg sticking out of somebody's body, don't freak out. Uh, yeah, I saw that with the ski team, my first year and our first camp in Chile, I'll tell you that after. And, uh, it teaches you how to really think on your toes and stay calm. That's what I found, especially when it's, um, when you're on field and you're doing on field coverage, the, a lot of the rehab stuff is, is pretty similar pretty much the same when it comes to mobs and modalities and strength range of motion. Uh, and then it's just, you just get, you have more options for, uh, because you're, you're, you're seeing the, you're taking the athlete onto the field and you're with them every day. Like as a, as a student athletic therapist, you have to, we had to do 1500 hours of, uh, of uh, direct uh, internship and uh, you're, you're designated a team or a sport every season. So you know, I had football one year and I had track another year and I had baseball another year, but you're the therapist for that team the entire season. So you get to, you're with those, those athletes every single day and you get to see the whole progression of, okay, this patient went down or this athlete went down on the field. I did my on-field tests. We diagnosed this, sent them off to surgery. Now I'm, you're the primary rehab person every single day for that, that individual, sometimes twice. All right. You got to get that athlete back on. And then you see them all the way back to full play. So it's, it's a, it's a cool experience to see, to take 
a patient all the way from initial injury all the way back to high performance, which we don't always get to do as physios. We typically will see them, oh, you know, I sprained my ankle or I did something on the weekend. Okay. We assess them. We send them off for MRI. Okay. Now they're going for surgery. Uh, we rehab them in the clinic, but we don't get to see them in their sport. Like we don't get to test them on field. We don't get to see them in practice. So that was, that was, uh, you get to see the whole evolution of it. The, the quick thinking, thinking on your toes and not panicking. That was also very helpful. Um, but you know, like I said, it's still, it's orthopedic MSK. And I think I would have been a better athletic therapist had I, uh, learn more about the other systems. So yeah. what are like the main things you wish you learned coming out of PT school? Cause there's some things that we're learning that yeah. I feel like I'm, I might, I'm probably not going to use. And there's some things yeah. that I really wish we had a deeper background. In. So what yeah. are the main things you wish you learned coming out of PT school? So let me, uh, let me start with by asking a question. How many special tests do you guys have for just the shoulder? Quite a few. A lot. Right? Like a lot. School, we don't learn too, too many, but I know there's a lot. No. Yeah, there yeah. are a lot, right? You look at McGee's textbook and for a supraspinatus, there's like seven or eight mm. impingement tests. And like, you probably don't need one and then watch them move and watch them impinge their shoulder. Um, what would be the most helpful is that if you have all these tools, you get, you can collect all this data, but then you're like, you collect all the information in the assessment. You're like, well, what do I do with it? Where do I start? How do I organize this information? Right. That's what I wish I had coming out of school because it would give you a better flow of, okay, well, we found this, 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 and this. Um, I, I, you don't know where to begin. Do I stretch this? Do I activate this? Do I stabilize this? Right. Mm -hmm. If there's a, a flow, if there's a consistent flow to your assessment, then there's going to be a consistent organization and flow to your treatment because in your assessment, there should be a hierarchy of, of content looking at the body globally, look at neural structures. Um, you know, you're looking at your posture and your breathing before that, and then you're kind of breaking things down from these global movements into smaller pieces. Um, and then, you know, going through reflexes, kinetic muscle testing, um, then you can start to build a better picture as to where is my attention being focused upon and what is the body telling me? And if you have another form of feedback that such as movement to know if you're effective, that's also key because you go and you start mobbing a shoulder, Right. And then they get off the table. Well, how do you know if it worked? I don't know. Well, mm -hmm. if you check the range of motion first, and then you did your mob, did it change? Yes or no? If it didn't change, then you probably did the wrong thing or you focused on the wrong area. If mm -hmm. it got worse, nervous system didn't like what you did and you locked it up, maybe go treat something else. Maybe it's a neck, maybe it's a diaphragm, maybe it's a rib, maybe it's the lower back, maybe it's a pelvis, right? That's twisted up, that's causing some torque, that's causing that shoulder to jam up. But if you have an organized system in which to uh, look at the body and kind of pick off the main problem areas, not necessarily the pain, pain is easy. Pain is just like, I got pain here. Immediately, I'm just like, you start thinking of structures, long-headed biceps, supraspinatus, uh, subscapularis, infraspinatus could be referring, could be neck. So it's easy to be, when people are just like, my pain is here, but the hard part is finding out why is that pain there? Mm. It's not the shoulder's fault. Shoulder's the most mobile joint. It's probably the thing taking all the load. But if they got poor posture, they have a neck that doesn't rotate, I'm going after that neck. Because if they can't rotate through that neck, they're going to start hiking and moving to that shoulder more just because they have to. So mm -hmm. if you know what your optimal ranges are, 
what is supposed to happen versus what isn't, what isn't, what isn't happening, then it's going to make your job a lot easier as to, you know what, that neck isn't rotating. So we need to go after that to fix your shoulder. Cause when you go in and start looking at the shoulder, Oh, shoulder moves fine, but you have pain there. Yeah. So having an organized, yeah. Having something organized, systemic, systematic that you can consistently do with every single patient. And then where the specifics come in is once you've gone through your, your system, or once you've gone through your whole, you know, your whole flow, then you go into your special test. Then you kind of branch off into that specific area where the pain is to get your diagnosis of, Oh, here's the traumatized tissue, but you have to, that's the last thing you do. Not the first save everything where that pain is last. Look at everything before it and around it. Yeah. And I think um, one of the most valuable lessons in everything that you just said and, and my experience with you was this idea of the test and be test, because yeah. most times when, when we're kind of, again, like I, I reiterate like our student life so much because we're just focused on like the technical aspect of it. Yeah. Um, sometimes we're doing tests just to make sure that we kind of go through a thorough assessment, but to know that you're on the right track in terms of your assessment and even your treatment is if that treatment or assessment is showing you something, right? Yep. Like you can just mob a shoulder, posture your glide all day, right? And be like, I did something and just walk away from it, right? You mm -hmm. wouldn't know if it changed anything for the patient. If the patient can move their shoulder a little better after, then you know that, okay, the shoulder is at fault. Yep. Then you kind of look at the things that you mentioned in terms of like the mobility of the ribs or like the neck. And because I think you've told me that the neck is always like indicated or not, not always, but you have to always clear the neck. As soon you as gotta you're clear the dealing neck. with, you got to clear the neck for the shoulder. Um, yeah. But the question I was going to actually ask you in terms of your assessment, some of the details that you kind of look for in your assessments and your treatment is what are some of these, uh, what are the most important things that you look for? So I'm going to, I, we have uh, in the AMT, we have kind of our, our eight, nine kind of global movement scans. We look at cervical spine, shoulders. Can people touch their toes? Can people backbend? Can people rotate? Can people single leg balance? Can people um, triple triple flex and triple extend both two legs, one leg? Um, and so that's kind of like, I do that with everybody, regardless of what they do, because I want to see how they're moving as a system. Once I kind of pick off, you're like, oh, your single leg balance isn't very good. It's like the main thing that's popping, you know, that's really popping out that's, that doesn't look good. Then I start to whittle it down to, well, what, what interferes with balance? What well, could be proprioception? Could be visual? Could be vestibular? Um, could be poor muscle firing? Could be lots of stuff. Could be just uh, poor, you know, contact from the from the foot to the ground up, and you're not getting that reflex stabilization. So in that case, you know, you, you look at you know, you'll screen kind of top down control um, through cerebellar testing. Okay, that's clear. And then you can break that out, getting them into half kneeling, and, and start to kind of pick apart: is this is this a, is it a top down control issue or is it the bottom up control issue? Is it coming from the foot? Is the foot not engaging with the hip or is it that the trunk and the pelvis aren't keeping, you know, controlling rotation and causing inhibition down below. If you have, if you know, if you've got kind of just those, that top tier test to work off of, that's when you go and check the most, just go check those bigger movements. Cause they can feel those the most, the small movements, they're not going to see as much. But, you know, if somebody comes in, they can't touch their toe, their toes, and they have, you know, neck pain, and all of a sudden you move their neck, and all of a sudden they can touch their toes. Well, what did you just do? You did something safe to the nervous system. It said, yeah, I'm going to let flexion happen through here. You may have released the dura, who knows, but you did something that caused the change. 
And also the patient is like, wow, I can touch my toes. I couldn't do that before. Now you have buy-in. Now you perform magic because you gave them something they weren't able to do and they were aware of it. So that test retest is so, so critical to validate what you're doing and give them confidence in that you are going to help them. Mm. It sounds kind of magical, honestly. It's from, from, from an outside in it does because like they're moving. They're like, I haven't touched my toes in five years. Great. Cool. Right. But when you, when you break it down to just simple principles of neurology and just like, think of, you know, you gotta, you gotta do your neural scan with everybody. Right. Because the brain cares more about nerves than muscles. The brain cares more about nerves than joints. So if there's neural tension anywhere in the body, it will be happy to tear up your hamstring. It will be happy to buckle up that knee to protect the nerve because the nervous system takes up 25% of all the resources. So anything that's centered or higher up closer to the brain takes priority, which is why in our top tier testing, you clear the neck first. The neck is the most important part when it comes from head down than anything else, mm-hmm. because every, all the information has got to go up through the neck to the, to the brainstem. Right? Yeah. The neck needs to look for threats. If somebody doesn't have a neck that rotates to look for potential things that might eat them, the nervous system does not feel very safe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Kind of like, kind of like my nervous system after you recorded me sleeping, my neck well, wasn't moving right after that for sure. It's okay. Every time, every, every time I go on your Instagram, my neck just seizes up too. Yeah. See, so I caused some mental stress for you, but yeah. at least you were taking care of one of your basic needs of energy conservation and I just mean, getting some sleep. I mean, I was set up like I, my, my, my fasting was taken advantage of mm-hmm. Mr. Tom. Oh, I'll, t- I'll tell the story to everyone. Okay. Cause I'm sure, I'm sure a lot of people already know cause you guys saw follow Tom, but if you don't, so I was fasting, like Tom mentioned, right? He knew about it. You know, we kind of talked about it, like the challenges and and he kind of helped me with my diet too a bit for it. And, I, and then there was just one of these days where I was just super tired. I, like the fatigue hit me like around lunchtime perfectly. Um, Tom tells me, oh, we have this very cool technology. It's called a PMF or or whatever it is. And, yep. and I'm like, oh, okay. And then he's like, yeah, like I use it for my shoulder. Cause like I, something happened to my shoulder and then it helped so much. And it's not, nothing's helped me before that. Like, it's like the best will be, it's the best thing ever. If you use that, you'll feel more energetic after. And I'm like, oh, okay. And then he's like, yeah, like, don't worry. Just, just go in the room 15, 20 minutes. You got it. You know, you can, you can just relax in there. I go, I go into that room and he set me up, right? Like he set me up and I was like, oh, this feels really good. You know, like this technology is actually amazing and whatever. And then it was very relaxing, right? He closes the door. Very respectful, right? So I'm still like, it was my lunch break. I, I took a little nap, you know, like I got a little nap, you know, I got a little tired because like my energy is low and this amazing machine set up on me. And then I remember distinctly, like someone creaked open a door, like the door that like to the room and I was like, oh, shoot, like maybe someone, someone like wants to come in like an RMT or someone wants to use the room for one of the patients. But I'm like, oh, if they did, then they'd probably knock and come in and tell me like, oh, hey, we need the machine. But then I find out later that this guy opened the door and kept the creek open so he can just record me while I was sleeping. So, yeah, we, gotta, we turned we that into a whole, 
It turned into a whole meme. I had people from UFT messaging me that I haven't even talked to in so long. (laughs) Telling me, oh, hey, Wadi, look at you. You look like a clown (laughs) here. (laughs) We're we're trying to make you famous, but I also got you in shit from your wife because uh, you couldn't complain about being tired anymore. Exactly. I I saw the post. I know what you had to I had to deal with like so much. I had to deal with like social trauma. I had to deal with my wife. I had to like, I had to calm everyone down. Like, Hey, hey, no, like it was just a little nap. Like it was during my lunch break. No one believed me. So thanks for that. It's tough to believe, man. (laughs) This guy guy tagged the UFTPT students page. (laughs) That's savage. (laughs) Well, I wanted to to show what good progress you were making to all your, you know, your, your colleagues and your your friends and potentially some of your professors. How good oh, you're yeah. doing on your placement. Yeah, it's great. Mm-hmm. You know. <laughs> Gotta be so happy too. All the props on it. <laughs> That's hilarious. Sorry, Mike, I interrupted you. I, I know you were. I know you were very proud, I was of, that. Very proud of that post. I thought it was hilarious. We'll have to find the video and maybe put it here. Somewhere. I'll send it to you guys. Yeah. I still have it on my phone. I'll send it. Because <laughs> if this is up on YouTube, we can put it in the video. I have a YouTube channel I'll post it up on YouTube just go. shorts. Nice. <laughs> but why are you like this? <laughs> why am I like this? Oh, I'm just I'm probably hiding my insecurities from a, as a child And I'm just taking it out on you, honestly Yeah, it's bringing up some <laughs> childhood trauma for me too now Exactly Biopsychosocial <laughs> approach <laughs> I was bullied, so therefore I need to bully somebody else To get out, you know, I'm projecting That's all I'm doing, is I'm just projecting okay, right? It's okay, it's okay That's why I'm here, right? We all go good. We'll lead, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's it, man. That's Are it. We good. No one's crying. <laughs> you made it through the place. No one's, no one's crying. Crying. I don't yeah. know what you're talking about. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. I think Michael had an amazing yeah, intro. That we intro. Perfect, perfect transition. Uh, you mentioned AMT. What is that? I actually missed that. So um, this, this is the course that I wish I had coming out of physio school. Um, it's, it's the advanced movement therapist. Um, it, it's, I've been, I created it four years ago, um, got it refined and it's a two level, it's a two level course. So the level one, we, it's a lot of, it's a lot of fundamentals and it's taking a lot of the knowledge that, you know, physios already have, but it's giving different interpretation of it. So for example, like when, you know, you're doing a modified overs, modified Thomas tests, all those tests. And you do a favors and all of a sudden they, they all come up, you know, kind of positive for tightness, but no pain. Well, what does that mean? And if you know, you're just like, okay, this is my feedback loop. Then you can start to go through the system and find out why is that hip not opening? Is it a stability problem from the foot? Is it a, a motor control issue at the hip? Is it a core issue? Is it a breathing issue? Is it a T-spine issue? Is it a rib mobility issue? So it's basically, it's taking posture, breathing, um, and then it goes through the global movement scan and it's organizing and giving you a framework in which to one, use this feedback and two, to get to more of the root cause of, of the problem, not just treating pain. Um, where I find a lot too often therapists, they just get so pain centered and pain focused and patients is like, well, treat this. Yeah. But it's coming from your neck and you know what? Your ribs aren't rotating and your T-spine rotation sucks. That's why the shoulder's not working. It's, it's 20 years of, of experimentation. And then basically I tell her, I describe it as the, the level one took me like 20 years to figure out 
um, because it's all the stuff that we already kind of knew, plus some new things, uh, especially with exercise progressions. Like it, you're just going to get more specific onto, okay, I have all this information. I got my diagnosis. But when we use this three-step formula of changing input, um, integrating new movement, and then locking in with some strength control, it's going to make, it's basically the, the patient's going home with three exact exercises to treat that thing so that they get better faster rather than, uh, let's try five different exercises for five different things. So the, and then the level two, it gets more into using functional neurology, how to get access or how to assess the cerebellum because the cerebellum controls all of our movement patterns. Um, if there's old concussions or if there's repeated patterns, people sitting at a desk all day doing this, that causes these functional lesions in the cerebellum. The eyes don't track right. People are just like, you know, they, they do this all day and they wonder why they can't turn their head to the right. Well, because they've been repeatedly doing this and their eyes don't track this way and they're getting headaches. I'm like, well, we have to unlock, we have to get access to your nervous system to kind of free those things up. So we get into more uh, advanced functional neurology in level two and then working more into like gates assessment biomechanics, uh, we get into reflex testing, going through the basic reflexes, the six survival reflexes, that being breathing, TMJ, uh, visual, vestibular, um, cervical, and spinal, right? So like those are kind of the basic reflexes that we all develop off of. And if you know how to assess those and re re kind of recalibrate them and reset them, then the rest of the system falls into place. Um, we've also... You know, we do, we do standard muscle testing in the level one where we're isolating muscles, but we're not doing it to see if they're strong or weak. We're looking for inhibition in the system and it's another form of feedback. So you go in and you, you assess a glute max and it's like, oh, that, you know, the, the, the person can't lock this into place. So is it a weak glute? Most of the time, no, it isn't. It's usually inhibited. It's being shut down for some reason. All of a sudden you go into the front, you release TFL, you release SOAS because your modified, your Faber's test and your modified Thomas told us, oh, there's some restriction in psoas. Let's go release that. And then all of a sudden you release it, you go back and check the glute max and it comes back on. So was it weak? No, but it needed some input change around the hip to get it to fire back up. And now all of a sudden the person's back pain is gone because they have proper hip extension and they can actually control it. Because if they don't have proper hip extension, guess what they're doing with their back every time they walk? They're rotating, extending through it, compressing the joints. So you don't need to sit there and do pivots and pavums on an L5 joint because it's probably hypermobile. But what you need to do is go to the front, release that psoas, maybe release diaphragm or ribs to allow hip extension to happen. And all of a sudden the glutes coming back on. Great. Now we can do some bridges. Give a bridge to somebody with, with you know, that inhibition and that poor hip mobility. It's just going to make it worse. You're just going to jam into their back all day long. Hmm. I have so, a bit of a technical question about what you just said. So yeah. something that I've learned I'm not sure if it was from a CI or just from school, but something I've learned is you release or you regain range of motion in a specific joint, and then you strengthen into that new range, which is kind of yep. what you just described. What are yep. your thoughts on that? Would you do it in that way, in that order, or do you have a different approach in AMT? No. Um, so we, we try and make it as simple as possible for both clinician and patient. Um, well, you typically go after, so if it's more soft tissue, we're going to go, we're going to take a soft tissue technique, you know, ART, or you're going to do some fascial releasing or fascial flossing or some position, whatever it is, or even just using something simple like a lacrosse ball, right? Let's just jam a lacrosse ball in that psoas and teach the client how to do that. 
Great. Now they have first part of their homework. Okay. Once that's released, now we can teach them how to do some hip mobility, do some, you know, uh, hip extension and quadruped to get them to integrate that new range of motion. Or maybe we give them a hip flexor stretch, right? To get them and do some contract relax in that new range. And then you're going to give them a glute bridge. Maybe it's a single leg glute bridge to, to um, facilitate more hip extension. So it's a little bit more of a, is it a joint problem or is it soft tissue? And then integrate some new range of motion actively. So the active mobility, or even just doing some end range isometrics, both short and long range, and then load it up, give them a band, get them, some, get them doing deadlifts, right? Get them doing squats, something to fire up those glutes in the specific manner that you're looking for. So it's a little bit more of a three-step uh, process and circling back to remember what I said about the skin, the skin is the, is the, is the input to the brain. So if we are doing something to the skin, whether it's a joint mobilization, soft tissue, even something simple as rubbing the skin in a particular way, and then go check the glute and watch it come back on. Like it doesn't have to always be complex. If there's some deeper fascial restrictions, yeah, you got to dig in there, but just applying an input or even just tapping a muscle, it, it's bringing awareness because that's essentially what you're doing. When you're doing a manual technique, you're getting the brain to pay attention to that body part. That's very right. interesting, actually, that you see that the tapping that goes yeah. back to how you're kind of like pulling from the different units. Because one of the things that we learned for like individuals who have like Parkinson's, for example, they have like yeah. this thing called like I think the fascinating gate where they sometimes even just freeze yeah. in their gait. Yeah. One of the cues that you use to like facilitate their gait, it's not it's not like the muscles completely like yep. atrophied it's yep. just the fact that they can't initiate the movement initiate the thing that we would do is you literally like tap on the body part that you want them to like like activate almost so it's actually yep. very interesting how how it kind of pulls from that and integrates it into a population that you're dealing with yeah so tapping tapping on a muscle um is going to elicit a fast twitch response so if you're looking to activate a muscle tap on the muscle right you're getting the spindles to, to fire up if you want to relax a muscle, tap on the bone next to it because that vibration creates a piezoelectric pulse. It has a very calming effect to those local muscles. So something as simple as, oh, this muscle's all toned up, rub it a few times to get the fascia, to get the input, tap on both ends, and then watch how that muscle kind of melts away. It doesn't have to get super complicated. And that's something that we'll teach clients. I'm like, look, if you're going to foam roll your quad, great, do it. Do it. Uh, if the goal is to settle down the muscles or change the tissue, we need to apply constant pressure for greater than 10 seconds so that you bypass the spindle response. If you're swiping at the muscles for faster than 10 seconds, guess what it's going to do? It's going to activate it. So if they're, if they're trying to get quads to settle down before bed and they're just rolling the shit out of it, like, well, you're turning them on because you're stimulating spindles in a specific way. If you want to relax them, well, then hold the pressure on there and maybe do some what we call fascial flossing. So, you know, lay on the quad on the foam roller and then get the hamstring to turn on and then use some of that reciprocal inhibition. So now you've got direct pressure to disrupt that the, the spindle signaling. And now you've got reciprocal inhibition using an opposite muscle group to cause inhibition. And then it melts away a little bit better. So we have to be our, our direction and techniques, I find, are less important. But how we, how we apply pressure or how we apply contact to something simple like muscles and skin will either cause a facilitatory response or an inhibitory response. And we have to look at what is the goal. 
Are we trying to activate? Are we trying to relax? Is our goal to, you know, encourage somebody to move forward or do they need to maintain and control posture? And it depends. So you got to think, what kind of input am I applying to the brain? Some of those hands-on techniques you were describing, they yep. remind me of things that we learn about manual therapy, manual yep. techniques, soft tissue release, etc. So I did see that you have your FCAMP designation as well. So I'm yep. going to ask a bit of a controversial question. Manual yep. therapy, orthopedic no. division of physio, does it yep. work? <laughs> well, kind of a you know it's a it's a bit of a loaded question there proud but i appreciate i appreciate everything that i learned in the fcam system i do uh it gives you critical thinking it gives you advanced manual techniques um you know it, it you know it uses a lot of evidence-based research to validate what we do um it teaches you to think um above you know it teaches you to kind of move away from the pain site a lot like look at above and below do, you know, I think from my understanding now, it's been a while since, since I finished mine, I know they're moving more into the biopsychosocial model. There's a lot more, there's more leaning into that, which is great because what did we talk about in the beginning? Language, use of language, you know, and, and finding out what, what individuals need. Um, it's, it's a lot of work. Do you need it to become a great therapist? No. Um, is it good to have? Yes. Um, I, I, I appreciate it. I, I like doing it. I like the manual skills. I'm good. I'm, I think I'm good. I'm pretty good, uh, with the techniques. I use them quite a bit. Um, but not as not, I don't use all the ones that they teach. I have my set few that I'm really good at. And I just use those because at the end of the day is do I need to do an imp glide or you know an extension thrust on a c3 and a c4 to reduce it to, to improve extension on or rotation to the right maybe but if i have a good flick on the other side and all of a sudden their neck rotates i'm like yeah that was good so you're going to use you're going to use your feedback testing anyway so regardless of what technique you use and i know some amazing therapists who are in f camps but they've extended their knowledge into all these other different realms and they've brought them together and that's what I like to think I did with the AMT is, you know, um, well, he you know, mentioned all the plaques on my wall. Well, I did RKC and I did MOVNAT and I did um, uh, AMN and uh, FCAMT and acupuncture and, you know, some osteopathic courses. So I learned from all these different systems <clears throat> and I felt they all offered something really great, but they were still incomplete. Which is why I created the AMT. Yeah, like I think one major thing I just I've I've appreciated about you because I did I was I don't know if you remember but I was shadowing you one day on yep. Ace yep, and I remember. it was really interesting to see your um, integration of different uh, philosophies. Mm. So your integration of like you were saying neurokinetic yep. therapy as well as the F camp yep. stuff as well as the, like what we traditionally learn in physio school. And then yep. also open-mindedness. So being open-minded yep. to all the other, um, all the other ways of practice that that are out there. So, yep. you know, it's it's just really important to us as new grads because we need to always be thinking about you know the future of care, how we can keep uh, growing as clinicians. So I guess my one of my last questions to you is, 
what are some tips you have for new grads to keep to stay on that open-minded journey and just improve as clinicians take his emt course is what he's going to say <laughs> well obviously oh, you can promote that. <laughs> if you want you can promote it oh, yeah, no, for sure. but but what i don't want people to think is that you know the amt is the end all be all it is designed to like i said it's a framework that you can pull in new information that you can plug it in to as long as you've got a set form or set flow of how to assess consistently, then you're going to know if something works, right? It's, it's leans it, the level one really leans into the assessment side of things to make sure that you're checking your work. If you were treating somebody, you better make sure you measured something in the beginning, because if you didn't, then you don't know if you're effective. Just ask the patient, does that feel better? Yeah, I think so. Well, that's not really convincing for them. And it, it, it won't work for everybody. Like there's times where I go through my system and I'm like, huh, nothing from my system is working, but I'll go and I'll just, I'll, I'll pull in, you know, something else from TCM or from uh, an osteopathic course. I'm like, oh, this is what the person needs. But at least I, I consistently go through, I'm like, okay, what I, what, you know, what my system deems as um, uh, necessary, or we need to look at these things. Sometimes it doesn't and that's okay. And it's, it's not the end all be all tool. And, you know, we don't want to lean into, into tools like IMS. I have, I have IMS. I love IMS. It's a great tool, but it's not a tool for everybody, right? Manipulation. It's a great tool. It's not a, a tool for everybody. And if you start leaning into tools, then, you know, you're, you, you're uh, a carpenter with a hammer and everything looks like a nail, right? And then it, you're not doing anything specific for the person. You're not pulling out the right tool. I'm not going to hire a carpenter who only uses a hammer to build my house. That would be dumb. Mm -hmm. I want them to use their skill set and their knowledge to build the best house with whatever tools that they feel that they need. So number one, um, find a mentor, find a mentor that, that can resonate with you and foster learning, uh, make sure they're not fixed in any one way, make sure they have an open mindset, um, keep an open mindset for sure. Because there's a hundred ways to skin a cat. Um, you, you, it depends on the person in front of you. And you'll also notice that what seems important, like we'll have patients and you'll know that patients on our intake. I'm just going to go on a little side tangent here. Somebody writes in their intake form what they didn't like about past experience at another physio clinic. I didn't feel heard. I see that. I'm like, all right, this is going to be a long history and that's okay. Cause that's what they need. I had a patient. It was a 40 minute history in a one hour assessment, but they felt better. And they're obviously very stressed out and their, you know, their body posture, their breathing, everything told me that I'm like, look, here's what we're going to do today. I'm going to teach you how to breathe because we need to manage your stress because you've had all this trauma and all this negative, um, these negative thoughts and these negative language told you that you're broken. You have this and that I'm like, let's just manage stress. So then we can sleep better because if we can sleep better, then you can manage more stress better. Because if I give you an exercise, it's just going to tax your system and it's going to drive you through the roof. So um, making sure that and I'm going to circle into step. So this is where you need to step back and look at the forest, not just the tree in front of you. You need to look at the big picture of every person that comes into your office, because sometimes they just need to talk for an hour to feel better. And sometimes there's like, I want you to just touch where my pain is. Right. 
if we can educate them and explain to them, yeah, we're going to get to that, but we need to look at other things first that may possibly feeding into that, then they'll understand. How do they have understanding? You measured stuff and you made them aware of the changes. If they aren't aware that, oh, you know, shoulder flexion is jammed up at 120. And then when you finish, they're at 150. If you didn't show them that at the beginning, then they're like, well, it feels the same. But yeah, but it looks better. Well, maybe to you. So bring them into the into the uh, assessment, make them aware of what they're not doing so that when you do make a change, they are also aware of the change. And, and at that point, they're going to start feeling better. Mm-hmm. I feel like those are a okay. lot of good takeaways for new grads, like especially yeah. just personally me, just listening to some of those points, like those are huge. And some of the things that like I try to think about on placement, like I'm at uh, in acute care right now, but going into yeah. practice later. One of the things yeah. I wanted to ask you as well that came up a few times while we were talking was breathing. Like, What do you mean yeah. by breathing and breathing technique? So breathing is uh, the breathing is the first reflex, the first um, primitive reflex. And what I mean by that is uh, what's the first thing that we do as babies when we come into the world? Cry. Cry, yeah. But in order to cry, what do you have to take? A breath. You need to breathe. A breath. Right. So it's a reflex. Babies don't, or they're not taught how to breathe. They just, they come in that, that positive pressure, negative pressure inside their lungs forces the diaphragm to kick on because the diaphragm is a musculoskeletal muscle. Now, what we know with regards to the nervous system and all the other systems, the nervous system is the main governor and regulator. The nervous system controls the immune system. The nervous system controls the endocrine system. The nervous system controls the musculoskeletal system. It controls everything. But it's hard to control your nervous system when you're in a state of stress. If your breathing is like this, I am, I am sending a signal to my brain that I have to hyper-oxygenate to run away from imaginary tigers because I might get eaten. But if I'm breathing calmly through my nose, in my belly, and the diaphragm's coming out, it puts me into a parasympathetic state. I can now rest and digest and I can recover. But when people are breathing in a sympathetic state, there's no recovery. Cortisol is being flushed into the system. They're hypervigilant. Their blood pressure is high. Everything is high. And it's just survival. Okay. We have two functions. Our nervous system has two primary functions, survival of the individual, survival of the species. And if you have an understanding of how is this person needing to survive and their breathing is offline, I need to get control of their breathing. They need to get control of their breathing so that they are not feeling this threat. So just by simple three seconds in, pause, six seconds out through the nose, what we know is by doing five minutes of that rate and rhythm of breathing, it reduces cortisol by up to 20% for four hours. So I have people do that every, you know, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Now we can keep their cortisol reduced 20% throughout the day. Well, if they've got this, this lower threshold of stress response and pain, I, we just give them something. Hey, we got a little bit more wiggle room to do exercise or do the things that we need to do to get better. Because if they don't have energy, if they're always redlining and there's no extra energy to do anything, do you think they're going to be motivated to do your one little exercise? No, they'll find any reason not to. Why? Because this, the human individual needs to conserve energy for survival. There, if there's no extra energy to, to, to spend, it won't do it. And we will find reasons not to do it. So breathing is your access to the nervous system. You can either, it can take control of you if you're not aware of it. 
but you can take control of it to take control of your body and your physiology. Yeah. So is this a technique you use with a lot of your patients and how do you, every single, every every single single patient, you just watch them, you know, they get them to lay down. Okay. Take a breath for me. They're breathing through the mouth. I'm like, okay, do you know how many breaths you take in a day? I'm like, no, about 25,000. So it's probably why your neck is tight because you're using your traps and your pecs all day to help you breathe. Oh, okay. That's why we have headaches. Yeah. So as soon as you start to bring their awareness, one hand on chest, one hand on belly. Okay. Now just breathe into your bottom hand. I don't say breathe into your diaphragm because the brain does not know where that is. Can't feel it. But as soon as I say, breathe into your belly hand, Oh, brain knows. I know where that is. And all of a sudden they start breathing into their diaphragm. Mm -hmm. You get them to do that at a certain rate and rhythm and their nervous system. People will come back and like, I, my, my shoulder pain is gone. And all we do is breathing. Well, because you're not doing this all day, using your shoulders to help you breathe. You create space because if I'm like this all day, there's no space for the shoulder to move. All of a sudden they brought the shoulders down. There's space, no more impingement. So coming through those reflexes, breathing is number one because it's the gateway to the nervous system and to, and to everything else. The next thing is TMJ. Why? Because what does baby want to do next after it cries and breathes? Why is TMJ important? You want to eat? Eat. Got to eat. Got to tell mom, I need food. If the reflex of the TMJ is, if the brain feels that there's threat to the TMJ, there's threat to survival. If you ever had a, a seed or something stuck in your teeth? Yeah, every morning right? when I have my everything bagel. Yeah. Do, do you just leave it there or do you just sit there and, and scrape at it with your tongue until your tongue's bleeding and so, so this is, I actually thought about this. I used to care about the seeds in my teeth before, but now I don't because I have a mask on. <laughs> but when you bite down, it's going to change your jaw alignment right now it's going to cause disruption in this very important structure for survival. If the brain detects that there's poor alignment in that TMJ, it's going to set off the alarms. It's going to force you to pick that thing out until we have proper occlusion so that we don't muck up that thing that we need to eat food with and also communicate because if we can't communicate, I can't, you know, I can't communicate to the tribe. Oh, there's something coming or uh, I can't communicate my needs. Right. And then you go into the visual system, vestibular system for balance and threat detection and then cervical because the cervical spine needs to pivot and rotate to look for threats. Right. And then the rest of the spine follows. Is that why Waleed's so out of whack all the time? He just always has seeds stuck in his teeth and it just threw everything off. I said recently, I said recently, chill, 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 chill. Don't give him anything. Please stop. (laughs) (laughs) I just, I just want to help you, man. Waleed's just a little seedy. That's all. (laughs) <laughs> oh lord man okay so um i wanted to say that first of all so for the amt um a lot of people that um have have had some conversations with me recently like i've been sending out a survey to most yes. of you guys I'm, I'm sure prab and michael have been familiar with it too but you know who you are um the reason why i sent out the survey I know it was super sketch. It was because of this guy. I was sending it for his course and he was just trying to get an understanding of what kind of gaps, because I, I identified my gaps in terms of my own perspective, but it was mm-hmm. like something that we kind of designed um, to tailor towards student physios and not even just physios, I guess, like any, any therapist really um, yeah. that's like early in their experience to kind of see the gaps that they have in their assessment and their treatment. Cause like, 
most of the time, like I felt like there was certain like hiccups that I, I would have during my assessment or even during my yeah. treatment. Like I would understand, I wouldn't understand why I'm doing certain things. Um, so the, like the things that I learned with Tom, like the AMT principles and stuff like that kind of cleared it up. It kind of streamlined the process. And then I get to kind of pull in my own strengths and kind of lead the assessment in the way that I want to. It wasn't like, Oh, you need to do it only this way. And that's it. Um, yeah. Which is very, very um, useful as a clinician. Cause then you don't think, now you're not thinking about the the technical details. You're just thinking about what's your flow, what what's the way that where where do you want to take it kind of thing. Um, so for that link for that survey, we're gonna link it again in the bio for this episode. So if you're a young clinician, a uh, young physiotherapist, AT, what what kinesiologist, anyone, please give us your feedback on that survey so he can kind of um, design the course accordingly. Um, I mean, it's already designed, but you know, yeah. um, the last, yeah, exactly. So the last thing that I wanted to ask you, Tom, that I didn't include in the questions, okay. um, and I just want to see you squirm. Um, Never question happened. that. I, oh, oh, watch! I know, I know. Your your whole you're gonna start doing one of these, and you need to center yourself with your thumb. <laughs> so the question I had for you was. Um, if there was a billboard that you had the opportunity to put anything on, like a, a quote, what would it say? Um, be more childlike. Be more and childlike. the reason why I say that is when you have a childlike mind, you're always inquisitive and wanting to learn. It's always what kind of challenge can I get into? What, how can I get better? How can I, um, you know, it, it's keeping that desire to learn, but making sure it's fun because kids always find fun in stuff. Even if it's boring, they'll make a game out of it. So that's my, that would be my billboard um, at this stage in my life because I'm obviously getting up there in years, but it's be more childlike. You're having a midlife crisis. <laughs> <laughs> well, you were my midlife crisis. It's over now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you got right back. Oh, there we go. No, you had your chance to leave. <laughs> yeah, you, you you came in and I'm like, yeah, my life's not that bad. <laughs> uh, <laughs> It'd be worse. I, I really you will like, lead us that question in a previous episode. <laughs> <laughs> I really like that advice, though. Like, not even just in, like, I feel like what you were saying, you're always learning. Not even just yeah. with that, but just I feel like in general, like, as we're getting older, I feel like everyone is so serious all the time. Yeah, I don't no, know. I don't know, man. Like, we're obviously we're we're trying to be better. We're all trying to improve. We're trying to start a career, start families. But at, at some point that there's like little things that are a bit more important. You know what I mean? And yeah. I just feel like it's really important not to be super hard on yourself when you're learning new things, when you're in a challenging situation, it's important to stop being so serious, man. Like yeah. I try to, I try to really embody that. We'll leave knows I embody that. I'm just always trying to be fun. And, and like you were saying, childlike, like it's. I lean it's way too much to, into it. <laughs> Huh? I said I lean way too much into it to a fault almost. <laughs> I really like that advice. That was that was great. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, we and we always try. We always keep it lighthearted at our clinic. You know, it's always yeah. professional, but you'll hear it's a it's an open concept. Uh, everyone's laughing. Everyone's joking around, um, and and that's fun. Like that's the culture and the environment that I always wanted to work in. So I'm like, mm-hmm. I wanted to create that, and you know, fostering and finding those individuals that 
are have this desire to learn. Like we do master, we do uh, mentorship every Monday. We all get together and teach each other. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's that culture of like everyone loves to do the mentorship. Everyone likes to do the masterminds in the, every quarter, and uh, everyone's just like having fun because you can do both. You don't have to be this serious professional all the time. People want to see personality. It's not like you have to be this stoic, cold you know, healthcare professional, that's like, oh, let's get to work now. Um, it, that's not fun. If it's not fun, then why do you do it? Why are we doing it? Mm-hmm. And I always, the one question, I'll just finish with this. My NHL players, the first question I ask them when they come back to see me for training season, I'm like, did you have fun? How was the season? Did you have fun? And if they say yes, okay, cool. We can get to work because they have work to do, right? And if the work isn't fun, then we need to make it fun again. So it's like, are we doing back squats with some plyometrics or are we playing card toss and we're doing some agility work and we're dragging kettlebells underneath the water at the beach, right? Like mm. we need to, we need to find that fun and stuff because that the fun creates flow. And when you got flow, that flow mindset, then all of a sudden learning just goes exponentially through the roof. Yeah. And on that note, uh, we're going to end it off because I don't want to, I don't want to ruin it now. So I'm going to keep it at that. You already um, ruined it, but... Oh, my Lord. Okay, fine. You you, you go ahead and finish it off. No, no. It, I, believe, <laughs> I believe you're in so you, good. Man. This is all you. you uh, yeah, so on that note, guys, this has been the PT3. It's been an amazing time with Tom. Um. So, yeah, that, that should be it. Cool. Nice. Sweet. <laughs> coming on, Tom. That was awesome. Well... Uh, yeah, yeah, no problem. Uh, well, if you want to put in the in the show notes or anything, like where people can kind of reach me, I have the tomswells.com website, swells.tom, Instagram, Tom Swells on YouTube. We All yeah. these links will yeah, be in we'll the bio. You want to learn more about Tom's ANT course? You want to find out his Instagram, where to reach his clinic? Everything's going to be in the bio. And you can feel free to message him on on Instagram or send an email. And thanks again, Tom, for, for coming on the show. And, on. Yeah, we sharing. appreciate you, man. Appreciate it. We appreciate it. Yeah, thanks some for having me, guys. It was fun. So if no one's got any more questions, this has been the PT3 podcast. Proud Michael will lead and Tom. We'll see you next time. Peace. Peace. Sorry, guys. Peace.